I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Before we get to the episode, let me tell you about our sponsors over at Hamburg University of Technology, who are organizing the first international robotics camp in Germany for girls. As we all know, women are extremely underrepresented in the STEM fields, that's science, tech, engineering, and math, but there's no reason for that. Cybersecurity analyst Karen Elazari, if you guys recall, was even on the show to talk about how much women bring to the field of programming. This is what our friends over at the International Robotics Camp in Germany are doing. From June 30th to uh, July 8th, they'll be hosting high school girls from around the world in Hamburg to have a life-changing experience. In a program modeled on Google Israel's Mentor IT program, these girls are going to be building and programming robots they're going to be having discussions with female leaders in the STEM field. This is an incredible chance for these girls to break boundaries, learn and develop new skills, and get started on building their dreams. The camp is looking to sign up girls from Israel. So if you know anybody, if you're a parent or a teacher or a friend of a girl who's 15 to 18, who's interested in STEM, visit 2NJB.com slash robot and sign them up. Sign them up today because the deadline is May 15th. So again, that's 2, the number 2, NJB.com slash robot. Again, 2NJB.com slash robot. Jerusalem, a powerful city. So powerful that we recall it when we take the oath of matrimony. On every holiday... And with it, we seal our national anthem. But it also has the power to divide, to tear apart families, to bring nations to wage war against one another. Jerusalem isn't only a city, it's a stony ocean of history, of reincarnations, of dreams, and of destruction, layer upon layer. All of that and more is encapsulated in one new book, beautifully titled Jerusalem, Drawn and Quartered. This book was written by none other than Sarah Tuttle Singer, and it depicts a year in her life, a year in which she dwelt between those ancient walls, met with the inhabitants of the old city, conversed with them, and immersed herself in the holy city. But the book also tells the story of Sarah's life, a story of much love and passion, but also of tragedy. Sarah Tuttle Singer is probably one of the more influential Israeli Americans living here. She writes for the Times of Israel, she's a social media sensation, and her name is extremely well known both in the local English-speaking community as well as in the international Jewish community. Sarah joins us today to talk about her life and her exciting debut book. Now, on that note, let me tell you about our friends over at Roadmap Jerusalem. Roadmap Jerusalem is an incredible new documentary. Look, few cities get so many emotions going as Jerusalem. For the Jewish people, obviously, Jerusalem has this deep spiritual meaning, but you don't really stop to ask yourself why. Now, the new documentary, Roadmap Jerusalem, it's exploring exactly that question, and it does it in such a compelling and a beautiful way. There are so many things in this movie I had no idea about. Uh, archaeological finds, historical facts, even personal stories. So you guys really have to check it out. It's a great movie, RoadmapJerusalem.com. You can buy the film there, and if you're interested, the director, Rabbi Nolan Leibovitz, is available to do a screening and a QA session at your local community center. So again, visit RoadmapJerusalem.com, buy the film, or get the director, Rabbi Leibovitz, to do a QA session and a screening at your community center, roadmapjerusalem.com. 
This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. Where were you when I was writing this book? Stony Ocean is one of the best images I've That's a, it's a child of our minds, Stony actually. Stony Ocean. Yeah. Layer, oh, my God. Okay. Most, I, mean, I have to I'm give most of the, the credit, edition. though, to Noel. He wrote that intro. Uh, it's stunning. It's, I do the editing. Yeah, we're, wow. but, we're a team. Okay. We're a power book. couple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's really. Um, but next book, I'm gonna. You guys have to sit with me while I do it. And <laughs> happily, ideas, happily. Please. But um, we're really excited to have you. Thanks Thank you for so much. Me. We finally got hold of you. <laughs> We've been chasing you for you know, ages. Getting BB is easier. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks for waiting and thanks for having me. And I'm really, I'm excited to be here. This is fun. Great. So, uh, I think I want to. I have a question to start with. Um, what, cause I guess Jerusalem kind of draws everybody in for different reasons. What, what drew you to <laughs> Jerusalem? Oh man, it's, that's, it's, uh, I fell in love with Jerusalem unexpectedly. I mean, I actually fell in love with Israel unexpectedly. I didn't even want to come to Israel when my mom insisted that I come on one of these summer programs through Young Judea the summer I was 16. I, I actually just wanted to stay at home and go to the mall and wait for Matt Cardenas to finally pick up the phone and call me. And I wanted to paint my toenails and hang out at the beach and uh, put sun in, in my hair and, and just be, you know, very original 16-year-old. L.A., Los Angeles. And... Um, but my mom had other plans, and she really wanted me to go to Israel, and especially Jerusalem. You know, she had been in Jerusalem right after the summer of 1967. She was there in end of July and August and September, right after Israel had liberated the old city from the Jordanians. And it was this fantastic time to be in Jerusalem, and especially the old city. And she would tell me stories about how the air was full of this incredible electricity, and she would walk through the alleys, literally singing, you know, full-throated Jerusalem of gold. I'll spare you. I'm not going to sing it in the studio out of um, respect for the two of you, but, um, <laughs> and for anyone listening. But she was in love with Jerusalem, and she never actually went back. And I think it was very important for her to send me there as her proxy. And in fact, actually, Jerusalem goes back even further in our family. My great-grandmother, who is this uh, this woman from a Lubavitch, you know, a Hasidic family in Poland, and she was sent as an au pair. She was um, considered old for her age not to be married. She was in her late 20s at this point, and she went to be an au pair in Jerusalem in the old city with a uh, you know, distant relative. And she ended up having this torrid, sexy, steamy love affair with someone who worked for the sultan. This was you know, back at the turn of the 20th century. And wow. as, as you can imagine, her family did not take kindly to that, and they shipped her back to Poland as fast as they could, and then they sent her as far away from Jerusalem as they could to Chicago, where she met my great-grandfather. So these stories of the romance of Jerusalem definitely was part of my upbringing, and yet, and while I liked them, and they were rugged and, and intriguing, I didn't actually feel that I needed to go. I wanted to be at the mall. But... Uh, <laughs> My mom was right. You know, going to Israel was a life-changing experience, especially going to Jerusalem. You know, it was the first time I didn't have to explain why I kissed the thing on the door uh, when I walk in or why I didn't eat shrimp or pepperoni or why I couldn't go out Friday nights and go ice skating with Amy and Emily. Um, it was the first time that I was surrounded by people from all sides who were full of this intensity, 
this passion, yeah, argumentative sometimes, but loving, warm, just like my family, but it was everyone, random people on the streets, Jewish, Arab, the guy from the kibbutz up north, um, the barista in, in Tel Aviv, and, you know, okay, let's just also be real, hot Israeli soldiers everywhere. So, you know, when you're 16, that certainly colors the imagination. But, you know, I think the turning point for me with really falling from, you know, this crush to deep love was when I was on a rooftop when I was 16 and I looked out over the old city at this mosaic of faith and peoplehood and, you know, a river of um, an ocean of stone or, and as, as you both wrote earlier and said, and it was, it moved me beyond words. And a series of events happened after that experience that complicated things. I mean, most love stories are very complicated, and it hasn't all been easy. And there were moments of sheer terror, even as a teenager, in my relationship with Jerusalem. But I think the foundation was always there and something that really moved me and kept me feeling connected to my family, but also to this this bigger piece of history and to our identity. Mm-hmm. It seems like the story of your life is is kind of like the story of Jerusalem. I mean, it's wrought with tragedy partly, but also with this like this intense passion and this love that we mentioned. It's like this mixture and like you described it a mosaic. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's interesting to draw that parallel, but maybe we'll uh start with with an excerpt from the book and we can have you read it. Sure. Thanks. Cool. All right. So just for a little context, um, sorry about that. Oh, good. The you know the, the book is a memoir, and it's a it's a you know a fairly intimate memoir, and it goes back and forth in time. And there's a lot in there about my upbringing and about my family. But then there were a series of events during that year that I've chronicled, and this is from last summer during renewed tensions and some violence surrounding the Temple Mount. There's this story in our family that we pass down from generation to generation to my mother from her mother who got it from her mother, the same woman with the long black hair who lived fearlessly in the old city and kissed a stranger on the roof. And the story goes like this. There was a family, a father and a mother and two children, and when the father was learning with the rabbi, the two children died. This was before Sabbath, the Jewish holy day when time slows and the world all around comes to a standstill. The mother put her two children's bodies in one of the back rooms, and when her husband came home and asked where the kids were, she said, I'll tell you after Shabbat ends. And so they lit the candles, and they ate the festive meal, they prayed, and they sang, and they talked, and they laughed, and the following evening, when three stars shone in the new week's sky, only then did she tell him the truth about their children. Why didn't she tell him sooner? I asked my mother when she told me the story for the first time. She wanted to give her husband one last joyful Sabbath before he found out the terrible truth, she told me. After all, there would be enough time to grieve. I'm thinking about this story now while I crouch in the bathroom of a magnificent home in the Jewish quarter checking my phone. It's Friday night, Shabbat, and outside the bathroom the room is lit with nearly a hundred candles and shadows dance along the walls and in between the dozens of people out there from all over the world who have come to this special home in the middle of Jerusalem, in the old city, to celebrate the holy day. Dinner was delicious. Roast beef and chicken and salmon, rice and potatoes and salad, and fresh challah and dusky red wine. 
The table is laden with the best silver in the china. A white tablecloth, hand-stitched, and the hostess wears all white, with what appears to be real diamonds sewn onto her dress and turban. She looks like a queen. Outside from the rooftop garden that smells like honeysuckle and jasmine, you can see the old city stretch in a sea of twinkling lights. But beyond, East Jerusalem is seething. There have been protests and riots all day over the Temple Mount. Some of the protests, some of the protesters out there are people I know, I'm sure. I wonder if Fadi is there, or Mahmoud, or Noura, for that matter. And some of the soldiers out there are people I know, too. Like Idan, maybe Gal. During dinner, our host gave a special blessing to the brave sons and daughters of Israel who are out there defending us, and it's all we can think about and talk about around the table. But earlier that day, I sat surrounded by angry men yelling, Death to the Jews, and with blood and fire we will liberate Aqsa. And I saw the anger on their faces, real anger, and I felt angry too. I saw one guy I know from Fadi and Mahmoud's restaurant waving his fist and chanting with the rest, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I wanted to say to him, But you know me, how can you say these things? But I didn't. It wasn't about me. And it wasn't about him either. And I looked away. And later on that day, there was the boom of a stun grenade, and hundreds of people were running toward me, the same ones who were chanting death to the Jews only moments before, the same people who were so angry, but now their faces were all stricken, identical masks of sheer terror, eyes bulging, mouths pulled back into a rictus, shouting and screaming. I had never seen such a thing before, and I was afraid too, because there was that loud noise, and there was smoke, and so many people, and I ran with them, and in that moment, I was just as Palestinian as they were, except I'm not, because I'm Jewish, and whoever fired that stun grenade did it to protect people like me, except I was in this terrified crowd of people running, suddenly afraid, and if someone shot at us with a rubber bullet, I would be just as hit as they were, and we were all there, sweat drippings, fingers splayed, and I could smell my fear like a wild animal, like I smelled in that room the night with the gray man, like I smelled by Damascus Gate. Oh God, we are so human. So, so human with our blood and our sweat and our stink from fear and yearning and our bones too. We are so easily torn apart and broken, so emptied and left like corn husks to dry in the wind. After the smoke cleared, I walked for a long time around the walls, and I called Keshet, my friend, because I needed a hug. She took me to this little store around the corner from her house, and I bought a ring that reads, May God bless you, and may God protect you. And I've been twirling it around my fingers all evening, and I think about all the Shabbat dinners with my parents that I shared, the thousands of candles we lit, and all the prayers we said. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. May the Lord, the merciful one, holy be God, give you peace in your heart, joy in your soul, and may he make you one with the universe. And I'm in the bathroom now, checking my phone in secret, because on Shabbat you don't use electricity. But there are protests and riots, and Jerusalem is tearing herself apart. And I have a news alert that a Palestinian terrorist burst into a family home during their Sabbath meal just an hour ago and butchered several people. We don't know how many yet, but at least one is dead, and that's all I know, that not far from this very house where people are celebrating and praying for children of Israel, out there is a family ripped apart and torn to shreds, and their blood is all over the kitchen floor. And I think about that, and my mom and my family, and my children with their father, and I think about that mother from the story my great-grandmother passed to her daughter, and to her daughter, and to me. And so I turn off the phone and say nothing to diminish the joy in the room on Shabbat. Amazing. Thank you. Really beautiful. Very intense. So it was I, a, I, an intense day. It still rocks me.
that right. like emotional whiplash of feeling one thing and then feeling another. And I think that's sort of been the year like having to be in different places and be saturated with different experiences that really kind of rend you wide open. Because the book does a very good job, I think, in conveying the complexities, you know, of the situations of of of, of living in Jerusalem, and I I th I think you managed to to decipher those little anecdotes of of, of everyday life there. Thank you. But uh, so I I wonder how, how do you feel about about the book and about about the journey that you you experienced now as as you wrote it i mean how do you feel about it how, how... i feel humbled and amazed and why did you write the book in the first place <laughs> listen i i wanted to spend time in the old city and i wanted to be in each of the four quarters but it's one thing to be that girl wafting around and talking to strangers and climbing rooftops and delving into cisterns and it's quite another to have the um, the excuse that you're doing it for a book so that really helped I, I wanted to do this anyway but you have different access when you actually have a publishing house behind you and you have different experiences with people and they take you more seriously which is was quite amazing and it was astounding to me how one of two things happened when I would tell people that I'm writing this book they would either shut down and not want to talk with me at all, and that's fine, I get that, or they would just, you know, open the kimono, metaphorically speaking, and just sort of parade around naked and share all their stories and their history and their feelings and their hopes and their dreams, and that happened far more often than um, than the first thing. People really want to talk, and I found that when you tell the truth about who you are, people tell the truth about who they are too, and then you have that spark of connection, and it's pretty... It's pretty astounding. I, I, it seems like a, a, a big part of the book, especially this excerpt, is um, is this theme of, um, I mean, in the excerpt, there's this theme that seems to me about about like l reconciling your drive for kind of innocent joy. Mm -hmm. That 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 seems like a big theme in in Shabbat, like putting everything aside. That's I mean that's kind of what it what came across to me in the story about the the wife and the telling her husband about the two children their two children is you know she wants to preserve his innocence mm -hmm. and and it seems like you're struggling to reconcile this innocence with you know knowledge of the fact that you have friends out there that are you know going through mm -hmm. what you also experience these horrors and I'm I'm wondering how you re how if you found any way to reconcile that um, that that love for Israel and that innocent joy of being here and being inspired by all the history and the amazing I don't know emotion that runs through that city and and these people and the fact that there's these atrocities you know as you perceive them that are happening right across the street. That's a great question. And, you know, it's not easy. And it's that balance between, you know, reality and the ideal between heaven and earth between hugging and embracing the good and wrestling with the things that need to change. And I think that is another reason why I'm so drawn to being in the old city, because I, 
everything comes from this place of love. And if anything, this year has only made that love stronger and that love has extended, you know, beyond the Jewish, for me, beyond our Jewish community into the other communities, into, you know, everyday folks who love Jerusalem and, and love the land here. But it's tricky because I also have very strong views, um, you know, about the conflict. And I'm, I make no secret of it that I'm, I'm against the occupation. And I, and I feel that the work that I can do in, in fighting the occupation, it has to come from a place of love of, uh, and being able to share stories from each side to the other and to, to try to be a bridge between these different communities. So that's, the best way that I can reconcile all of these things is to approach a very charged, very painful, uh, fraught situation with love and be willing to listen even when it's uncomfortable and be willing to ask questions and then hope that in so doing, people will ask me the same questions and they'll be willing to listen to me. So is there, is there, I mean, this kind of ties into Noah's question, but is there, something uh therapeutic about that that process is you know of writing the book and of bringing these stories out and Ooh, i don't i don't know if therapeutic saves the, the time right for way. a shrink <laughs> yeah. saves the money for yeah. a shrink it's interesting and for a drink yeah <laughs> well i always carry a flask with me full of, <laughs> there's always lefroig and if you see me see me sitting on a rooftop in jerusalem you're you know you're damn right i'm probably going to be having a drink up there but um I don't know if therapeutic is the right way, but it feels like, uh, it feels very mission driven. And, you know, there are a lot of stories in this book that are, are vulnerable and difficult. And there'll be things that are going to be difficult for the reader to take in and may surprise people that I shared them. But, um, by the time I'm ready to share a story that is hard or challenging, it's because I'm already over it. So I think the therapy came just through time and through living um, but I, I don't know. I'll have to think about that question. It's a good one, but it certainly felt great to write the book. And I did it in about three weeks and it was, um, a grueling and emotional high the entire time. So I, I enjoyed the process a lot. Less therapy and more like drugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, writing makes me high. I, um, yeah. I feel really alive when I'm writing. And in many instances, there were things I wrote here that I, I know I wrote them. Like, l let me be clear. Um, but I don't remember writing them because I, my brain, part of, part of my brain shuts off. I think um, they actually did some sort of cog sci research on this, that people who are musicians or artists or writers when they're in that creative space, their frontal lobe, some, the synapses detach, or there's something going on where you're literally out of your mind. So yeah. they tried to explain it to the creatives, yeah. but they, they couldn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm oh, sorry, I'm in my creative space. Right. <laughs> but the book is also very personal. Yeah. And you really share with us a lot of things from your personal life mm -hmm. that are extremely difficult to read like you said and um also uh, comes to my mind first of all abusive uh, relationship uh, mm -hmm. early on uh, but most um, profoundly uh a rape a raping experience mm -hmm. which of course today immediately takes us to the me too movement and uh, in a sense, I guess it's a part of it now. It's inevitable because we're all out there. And I wonder, 
if how how hard was it for you to make this decision to expose everything but also i have to ask you about that scene mm-hmm. where you, when you will tell about it in a bit uh, on on your first visit here in israel you never used the world word uh, rape even when you refer to this um, incident later in the book you refrain instead you use uh, the rapists terminology you know you refer to it as you the incident something or something happened and that really was you know I, it I was hard for me to, perce- to 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 read it because it felt like why can't can't you use the word if you're telling us mm-hmm. what happened to you why can't you put the word out there so that's such I, a good question i you know you know if, so I, i'm sorry if it's too that's a great question um personal but so now is referring to um in the beginning of the book um something happened <laughs> no air quotes around that where i actually have no memory of what happened I know what ha- I, I know that I was with a guy and I, I walked home with him because I had met him on one of my earlier summers in Israel when at 16, the summer where I really fell in love with Jerusalem, with Israel and with feeling connected and I'd promised myself I'd make Aliyah and, you know, and, and also in the back of my mind was something my mother had always said to me, maybe you'll meet someone nice. And I think that growing up in, in, the, in the diaspora in, in America, in Los Angeles, when you're Jewish, you, there's the, um, the idea of the nice Jewish boy and that there's, there's safety in someone who's part of your community and he, he won't hurt me. So I run into this guy. I, I don't remember his name. That's the, but I had met him on a previous summer and he uh, told me that he had photos from that previous summer and you know, nice ones of all of us hanging out and maybe he did. I never actually got to see them. So I go, you know, back to his house for the proverbial, you know, cup of coffee, which usually means that you're going to hook up with someone. And I knew what I was doing and I, I thought it was cute. And then I hit my head and I just remember this flash of white light and I woke up on his bed and My skirt was hiked up, and I, I'm going to just leave it at that. There's, more, there's a fuller description in the book, but um, for the purpose of this conversation, I'll just say my skirt was hiked up, and um, something happened. I don't know what it was because I don't have a shred of memory. And years and years later, I was, um, had a little surgical procedure, and well, you know, I was anesthetized, and I went from this moment of sheer terror where the anesthesia kicks in, and you feel like your face is exploding and your heart's about to stop. And then you wake up, and it's all over, and you realize that someone had been inside your body during that whole process, but you have no memory of it. And that was what triggered the memory of this experience in Migdala. I'm like, where did I go? What happened to me? I don't know what happened, and I don't even know his name to try to find out. And I, I wouldn't recognize him if he were to waltz in here this second. So it, it's this, um, and I think maybe that's why I couldn't use the word rape because I'm not, I know something terrible happened based on the, the evidence that was right in front of me afterward, but I don't exactly know what it was. And 
because of that event, everything else that followed led me to this moment where I'm actually sitting with the two of you and talking about this book. If it weren't for what he did, I wouldn't have ended up in Jerusalem later that evening. Um, I'm sorry, the, the next day. And then later that evening had a pretty difficult experience at Damascus Gate that sparked you know, a very real fear in the old city, which made me... Um, sort of heightened the emotions around overcoming that fear in the old city, which brought me back into wanting to explore it more on on a very, um, very profound visceral level of actually living within the walls and in within each of the quarters. So it's, it's funny how that all comes together, isn't it? You see I'm it, not, yeah. I'm not glad it happened. And yet yeah. look what happened because of it. To me, as I was reading it, I interpreted it as he, obviously used uh, a rape drug. How do you say date it? Rape. The, date, uh, the, what's date the rape word? Drug. A roofie. A roofie, yeah. A roofie. And, uh, and for some reason, I, I read it as, as mm, like some kind of... Because you quote him when you say you got hit in the head. Mm-hmm. Because that's what he responds when you ask no, him what happens. I remember pain. So I know something happened with right. my head, but you're right. It could have been. So to me, it was very confusing because... And, and and a little bit frustrating, you know, because I, I felt that it needs to be addressed. So it hurts to 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 you know, not being able to to put the stamp on that that event. And uh, but regardless, I I was amazed by how bravely you put everything out there. So back to the original question, like for you it was obvious that once you're writing this uh, memoir everything is out no there's so much i don't tell <laughs> i can get any idea um but i make a conscious decision that when i'm ready to share a story you i go you know full frontal with it and i think it's important in writing in general whether you're writing about an experience in Jerusalem or about anything. If you want to connect with the reader, you have to be willing to be as emotionally honest as possible and as vulnerable as possible. And I think that actually, um, I took that advice in being in the old city as well. And I put myself in situations where I was vulnerable and occasionally some things happened that were pretty terrible, but more often than not, wonderful things happen too. And I found that to be true in writing. You know, I, I get a lot of interesting comments from readers who feel uh, as triggered is the right word by some of the things I write. And I know that they're reading me, even though they may not agree with me politically, because they feel that there's a connection there. And I think that's because I've been willing to open up the parts of my life that I'm willing to share and to share them completely and honestly and vulnerably. And those connections have been profound because... I, I like when people from different walks of life are willing to read what I have to say, even if they don't agree. I like having those challenging conversations, and at least it means that people are engaged. And I found that the connections that have come through that, through writing and through conversations around difficult topics, have been very meaningful and very fulfilling, as was the experience inside the old city, too. Even the difficult things were part of greater learning experiences where I have walked away not just whole, but in, in, I feel bigger than I was before and with a deeper and more profound love of Jerusalem than I had even 
you know, when I came into that project already head over heels in love with the old city. How did your close family react? Oh, so I sent my dad a draft of the book before I sent it to my editor because there are things in there that he didn't know. You know, I, right after I got back from that summer, the the summer when I was, uh, not the summer I was 16, but the summer I was 18 when the incident in Migdalamek happened, my mom got really sick. She had already been feeling ill, but um, with stomach aches, and we thought, you know, stomach infection, diverticulitis, and within a few months, it, we found out she had stage three ovarian cancer, and it would it spread beyond, um, you know, to the uterus, the peritoneal lining, the liver. The prognosis wasn't good. Plus, I had to finish up, you know, SATs, college applications, making those decisions. Do I want to go to the East Coast for school? Do I want to go to the West Coast? And my mom's sick. And so the last thing I was going to do was start sharing things that I couldn't even remember to exp- to tell my parents what had happened. And also, I think maybe there was some shame around it because I know I walked into the situation where I got hurt. And so my dad had no idea and not even my best friend knew. She, she's read a draft of the book. And when I was in LA, she said, why didn't you ever tell me? And my mom's illness just was bigger than that. And again, it was something that I wasn't, I couldn't remember and I wasn't ready to deal with. So it's strange how that story has resurfaced for me. And, um, it's been something that I'm thinking about a lot more now. My dad's reaction was um, was perfect. It was warm and loving and gentle. And he said, I'm just so sorry that you had to go through all of this. And I'm lucky I have such a great dad. And I'm lucky that I had such a great mom, too. And when your kids will read about it. <laughs> they don't read English, thank God. Yet. No, look, my kids actually, we have a, a strange, strangely um, adult, relationship my daughter is uh, about to turn 10 and my son is eight and a half and half the week they're with their father who I, I want to be clear actually there's uh, there's an abusive boyfriend who's in this book that is not the right. man that I had children with um, yeah, a few yeah, yeah. people have weren't sure and they wanted to check now my ex-husband and the father of my kids is a terrific man he is um, a wonderful father a wonderful ex-husband and we're um, you know we're we're raising these kids together and he's a good guy and his family's been wonderful too. Um, so, but my kids and I have a very open relationship because the half of the week that I'm with them, I'm by myself with them and we have conversations that are about all matter of things. And I try to tailor it toward, you know, eight and a half and 10 year old ears. But at the same time, we're open about, um, um, you know, bodies and sexuality and and different kinds of relationships and marriage and they also know that when when mommy was in college she lived with a man who hurt her and they don't know all the details of that but they know enough and and as they get older they'll learn more and before they read this book I'll talk to them about it um and we'll we'll sit together and maybe read parts of it and but I think they know that I'm their mother and that I'm strong and that I'm uh, I'm never going to let anything happen to them as long as I can control it and I think they'll be okay you know my daughter actually was funny she um she has her first crush on this guy and he's he's also you know he's nine and would if he knew he'd probably like bunny shape out through the window but um but they're friends and so she asked me for for tips on on how she should manage her feelings and she said you know mama you 
and I swear to you, I, um, she really said this and there was another person present. So I have, I have verification. She said something like, um, you've lived a life of adventure and of passion and you've made a lot of mistakes, but you, um, but you have a, like a real sense of the world and I trust you to give me the best advice. And that I'm just like everything, every, <laughs> am I allowed to curse on this show? Of course. Every fuck up, every mistake I've ever made led me to that moment where my daughter, my, my not even 10 year old daughter is saying like, yes, mom, like you understand the world. Like, oh my God, I, uh, that was, That's that was the best so thing ever. The <laughs> that you gave her. <laughs> Oh man, I um she actually had it figured out pretty well she, on her own. She realizes that she is too young um to manage these feelings um you know in sort of a practical way and she also realizes that he's very young too, but she said I think we should stay in each other's orbit so that when we're older, like maybe 12 or 13, maybe then we can like each other. And so Wow. Yeah. <laughs> she, she used the word oh orbit. God, yeah, she said orbit. <laughs> I'm she's telling you, ten and he's nine, so she's like right. she likes them young. That's I amazing. see. But she, um, but, but that's the kind of relationship that I'm I'm building with my kids, and I feel so lucky to have. So that. basically, you're a cool mom. I, you know, um, I have a lot of fun parenting. You know, I know that I've fucked up my kids in in ways that I can't even imagine, but I also know that I'm giving them the tools to to manage the world and be resourceful and be brave and and so long as they know how to do that, it's going to be okay. And, um, and that's another reason why I take them with me to the old city and why I wanted them to be in each of the quarter with me to some extent. And obviously, you know, I, I may be, I, I, I'm not stupid and I'm not going to take them when there's tensions on Temple Mountain, there's protests. And I also keep, um, you know, my finger on the pulse of the old city and I have a pretty good sense of the new cycle and when things could boil over and I don't take my kids there then because it's one thing for me to know the lay of the land and know how to switch from Hebrew to English or when I need to run or where to go or what to do, which really hasn't happened since being there, by the way. But I also know that I can take care of myself. And it's another thing for me to be bringing my Israeli children into that situation where they don't yet have the vocabulary or the tools to handle that kind of nuance. But when we're in the old city, they just have the best time. And it's so important for me, for them to know different people because Israeli society is very um it's stratified in a way I mean stratified may not be the right word but it's very it's segmented it's also drawn and quartered where secular people stick together religious people stick together Jews stick together Palestinians stick together you know a Christian community is doing their thing and certainly there's overlap but that overlap is often the exception and I want my kids to have a broader sense I want them to be able to challenge um racism or bigotry or prejudice whether it's against palestinians or whether it's against the haredim individuals i i can't stand the rabbinut and i make no secret of that but you have to treat individuals like like individuals and you have to mm -hmm. be um y you can't lump everyone together and i want my kids to know that not just in words but in their actual experience growing up and so far so far, it's uh, it's going okay. Apropos the adventures your daughter referred to, mm -hmm. it uh, brings us to another excerpt. Um, Which one, the, the the Tinder one or the uh... the yeah the girl one? Okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. Hope yeah, you guys didn't give my... away too much. <laughs> I'm about to. 
Um, hi kids. Hi dad. If you're listening, um, I'm not the only one who's lonely sometimes and looking for love. Last week I went out with a vegan guy I met on Tinder. He was eating hummus in the Christian quarter when we both swiped right. He's a peace activist, one of these guys who meditates and went to India and lived in an ashram for a year. But then he practically punched the waiter in the face because there was butter on his baked potato. The guy I dated before told me that he loves Jerusalem the most in the whole wide world. He loves everything, the stones, the fragrances, the people, except for all the Arabs. They're like insects, he told me. The guy before that picked me up with this great song in Arabic bumping on the stereo. Wow, I love that song, I told him. Ah, you like it, he said to me. It's one of Hamas's songs. It's about liberating Aqsa from the filthy Zionists. Yeah. Rivki sits across me now, at a bagel place in the Jewish quarter. She's got long blonde hair curled at the ends. It's a wig, and it's made from real hair, and it costs $3,000, she tells me, twirling the ends. It's real blonde hair from several women, she says when I ask. Rivki has seven kids, and she's married to a rabbi. She wears heavy black stockings even in the summer, and blouses buttoned up to her dimpled chin. Her breasts are high and firm and full of silicone, and I know because she let me touch them. Rifki hasn't had sex with her husband in three years. He just doesn't want me anymore, she tells me, a tiny thread of mascara running in a slim black river from her eyelashes. I don't think it's me. I just think he doesn't like sex. He was never that into it. You know, I dated someone like that once, and it's hard. The thing is, I love sex, Rifki tells me. I started masturbating in seminary. All the girls did it, and anyone who says different is a liar. The thing is, it would take me too long to, well, you know, and I was the only one brave enough to buy a vibrator online. I remember picking it up from the post office by Jaffa Gate, not the one that used to be in the Rova, she says, referring to the Jewish quarter. It was purple, and it was really cute, and it was in this plain brown package, and I put it in my purse with my prayer book, and I went back to my room, and I spent the next three days there inside my room, and it was just bliss. She takes a bite of her bagel, and she wipes her eyes with a pink tissue. She opens a little mirror and reapplies her lip gloss. Her mouth is full and soft. I know because I've kissed her. She lowers her voice. I had an affair once, she tells me. Just once. Last year, one of the yeshiva kids who came for Shabbat. He was 23. I was 42. He stood me behind the Austrian hospice at one in the morning, in the Muslim quarter. We could have been murdered. I can't believe I did something so terrible, so risky, so sinful, and so... She pauses in her cheeks flush. So life-affirming. She lowers her voice. A lot of people are happy, she says. And some days I am too. I have my beautiful children, and I go to Pilates. But I'm lonely. The community doesn't help because we're all supposed to be happy, and if you aren't, you can't tell anyone. Marriage isn't a guarantee you'll be happy. Just look at me. She buries her face in her hands and she weeps right there in the middle of the bagel place, in the middle of the Jewish quarter, where everyone is looking but pretending not to. And sales just went up 500%. <laughs> and we lost half our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and the other half is... <laughs> no, On X hamster? No. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> that's the half we lost. They're not listening anymore. <laughs> 
Wow. Uh, so, so you guys have an idea now that the book is uh, is R rated. <laughs> it has everything. I that was tasteful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's just that it has everything in it. It's life. Really? And yeah. It's, it's life. And it's messy. And there are pieces that are jagged and don't make sense. And there are threads that I wish I could have tied up neatly in a little bow, and I couldn't because I haven't yet. And and then there are you know things that seem to fit perfectly, and that you know take me by surprise even though i experienced them and wrote about them i still can't believe it happened and things happen to you oh yeah like weird shit some weird shit <laughs> some weird shit went down. <laughs> and Happens half of it i didn't you. put in this book maybe in you know another 20 years i'll write a <laughs> an updated version with some you, more stories you should have that on the on the cover of the book <laughs> Nora's quote <laughs> shit happened to you some weird shit <laughs> no or Menninger. There's this, um, one of my favorite uh, memes is a picture of um, Dorothy from Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz and yeah. Alice in Wonderland, and they're sitting side by side. And the the quote on top is, "I've seen some weird shit." <laughs> <laughs> so where can we get the book? Oh, it's available on Amazon, and it's um, it'll be at Barnes Noble in, in the states and other bookstores. I know Romans in LA is going to be carrying it. If you aren't in America and you want it shipped, it's on Book Depository, and it's also on Kindle. And um, I, I really, I hope people will read it. I hope you'll read it. And uh, if you, if there are parts you love, I want to hear. If there are parts that really, really pissed you off, I want to hear that too. And um, if you come to Jerusalem and you want to meet up and meet some of the people who are in the book, I'm also happy to show you. And uh, how do people contact you? I'm on Facebook. I live there, and um, Sarah Tuttle Singer. Sarah Tuttle Singer, with Facebook. a hyphen. Mm -hmm. Sarah Tuttle hyphen Singer. Yep, and uh, I also have a website, uh, Sarah Tuttle Singer Writes dot com. Mm -hmm. And um, you're going for a actually, book I think tour. That's my, yeah, and I'll be all over the states. Um, I'll be in San Francisco at the end of May, and I'll be in Chicago in the beginning of May, and then East Coast sometime in November, and you know, I'm I'm available to come and to come and hang out. Amazing. Whoa. We'll put links in the uh, in the you. post. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Mm -hmm. um, Hi, David Suisa. How's it going? <laughs> shout out. Um, they have uh, some great uh, content. Jewishjournal.com. Mm -hmm. Check them out. Daniel Barron, uh, Ben Shapiro, Ellie Fink. Fink. Uh, a lot of great stuff there. So Jewishjournal.com check them out um and also. uh also we accept donations so if you feel like helping us out because we do it on our spare time go to twinjb.com slash donate and help us donate be a good jew make it rain <laughs> yep and that is it um sorry good luck with the new book thank you thanks for having it's amazing me. guys thank you. get it read it and see you Bye. Bye. Sei gesund.